Good morning. We're in the book of Jonah and uh, reading from chapter 1. We'll read the first uh, 16 verses. You want to follow along on the screen or read uh, from your Bible? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, "Go, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare, went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. They hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I want to thank Mike again for playing for us this morning. Uh, as you know, Chad wasn't here. He had planned not to be here, and he had got Heather Noriega to sit in for him. And uh, I got an email Thursday night that Heather had a temperature of 103 and strep throat. So we can pray for Heather, but uh, I went into a little bit of a panic. The sea was tempestuous around me. What are we going to do? And then I remembered my good friend from college, Mike Hampton. And so I called him up, and he graciously agreed to, on short notice to come, and, and he did a great job. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Charlie, for reading uh, chapter 1 of Jonah. 
If you, if you have your Bibles and you open them up, we're in Jonah chapter 1. And uh, this is our second week in our study of the book of Jonah. Last week we covered the first three verses, so I had Charlie read them for context. We saw that Jonah was given a mission by God. He was on a mission from God. But instead of embracing his mission, he ran from it. Why did he run? We saw that last week. In cha- does it, we don't see it until chapter 4, but we saw he ran because he knew his God. He knew his God was a God of love, a God of grace, a God of mercy. And Jonah did not want his enemies, the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, to receive God's love, his grace, and his mercy. He wanted his enemies to receive, in fact, the wrath and judgment of God. We also saw that when he ran from his mission, he was, in fact, running from the presence of the Lord. I think we learned that the the mission that God gives us, when God gives us a mission, it's connected then to our relationship with Him. When we run from God's calling on our life, we're in fact running from God Himself. Jonah rebelled against God. God commanded him to go to Nineveh and to preach judgment. But instead, we read in verse 3, But Jonah, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But Jonah, this is, this is so typical, God says clearly, do this, but we do the exact opposite. It began with, uh, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but Adam and Eve ate, and we've been eating ever since. God says don't, and we do. God says do, and we don't. God says go, and we stay. God says speak. And we remain strangely silent. Jonah's disobedience shouldn't come as a a big surprise. He's just following in the footsteps of his ancestors. We could say that these two words, but Jonah, represent rebellious human nature. A nature that each and every one of us has inherited from our ancestors, from Adam. And we've proved that we've inherited it because we sin as well. We rebel as well. Kind of depressing, huh? The nature we've inherited. But in verse 4, we have words of hope. Instead of but Jonah, we have the words but the Lord. But the Lord is an expression of the sovereign grace of God. God's intervention. God acts. God's going to do something. But the Lord. It's God's response to rebellious human nature. It's good news. And this morning, that's what we want to look at. As we examine what God does with Jonah and what God does with the the sailors, I think we're going to see one of the clearest pictures in all of the scripture of the good news, the gospel. God's response to man's rebellion is the gospel. The gospel, the good news is in fact that God acts on behalf of those who rebel against him. Thank God he does. And in the book of Jonah, his actions begin with a storm. God sends a storm. That's our first point for this morning. In chapter uh, 1, verse 4, But the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a, a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. God sends the storm. God has power over nature. 
Nature does not operate on its own. The author of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 3, he upholds the universe by the power of his word. God is the creator and God is the sustainer of all things. So, so when it comes to storms, when it comes to disasters, when it comes to tsunamis, when it comes to the tragedies of life, we have two choices. We have two choices of what we can believe. Either God is in control or God is not. Someone might say, well, isn't that a problem? Doesn't that cause you trouble? As a follower of God, isn't it a problem to say that God controls all things, even storms that wreck ships? But I would say no. I'd rather live with a so-called problem of God being sovereign over all things, even the tragic things of life, than a problem of a so-called God who's helpless, who has no control, just an observer. I may not always understand what God is doing. In fact, how could I? I'm the, I'm the finite. I'm the created one. We're the creatures. How could we understand what the infinite God is always doing? It's by his grace that he sometimes reveals what he's doing to us. But I do understand and I do believe that, that he's working. He's working in all things for his glory and for the good of us, for his people. I trust the truth of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. That verse doesn't say that all things are good. It says that things, the big picture, all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, for his people. God loved Jonah and he sent a storm into his life. The storm is God's intervention into Jonah's life. Thank God he didn't leave Jonah to his own free will. We love our free will, but it's so good that God stops us sometimes. Our free will can get us into trouble. Our free will can take us in the wrong direction. God graciously messed with Jonah's rebellious free will. He did this in order that his purposes might be fulfilled. That his purpose in Nineveh might be fulfilled. But he also did it to save Jonah. To save Jonah from a wasted life. A wasted life in Tarshish. A wasted life of rebellion against God. And also, there's a special bonus. This is how God is. A special bonus. Nineveh is going to get preached to by Jonah and repent. That's the end of the story. Jonah is going to get turned around. Not sure what happens to Jonah's heart. We'll examine that. Mark's going to preach next week on chapter 2, Jonah in the belly of the whale, and we're going to hear a little bit about Jonah's heart. But he does something extra in our story today. He redeems some sailors, just some random sailors, and God redeems them. Our God is amazing, even in his judgments. Even his judgments are a means of grace and mercy. Remember, he used the crucifixion of his own son to redeem the world. We can trust this kind of wise and loving God. We can trust him in the fiercest storms in our life. Tim mentioned that uh, 26 years ago, uh, Tim and I and others from this church, and uh, there was, I think, 300 and some odd of us with Campus Crusade, went to Japan 
for a short-term six weeks. We were in Japan as a mission team, and I, and I think Tim, as he said, probably received his call to return to Japan during that time. Is that fair? Maybe. Okay, sorry. Don't want to put words. But I felt like I got called to Japan at, at that time. And so from that time on, I moved in the direction of, of going, of returning to Japan. I remember when Christina and I were in the midst of raising financial support to return to Japan. It just wasn't happening. And it was getting very depressing. I remember getting uh, upset with God. Not a good idea. I don't recommend it. Didn't you call me to be a missionary? Didn't you call us to be missionaries? Didn't, didn't we go to seminary? Didn't we spend a bunch of time and money going to seminary to receive training? I was writing a thesis on sin, shame, and guilt in Japan. I poured my soul into that. Didn't you command us to go? And didn't we respond, God? We responded. Unlike so many others around us who are just sitting in the pews. We're responding. We're willing to go. What the heck are you doing? Your little pride in, in my attitude. So what's the deal? Aren't you in control? Aren't you sovereign? Can't you just make some people give us some money? That's all we need. We need some money. Money is easy. The cattle on a thousand hills are yours. What's going on here? Don't you care about the Japanese people? Oh, stand back. Lightning may strike. I didn't have a great attitude. But God. But God. Didn't give up on me. God was doing something different. Imagine that. He was doing something. He was working in my heart. He was humbling me. He was teaching me, you know, this really isn't about you. You might think you're God's gift to the Japanese people, but you're really not. And he had a different ministry direction entirely for us. I didn't know that. During that long support-raising process, we were re redirected. We were moved through counsel, through prayer, through watching the king and I. Oh, that's funny. We were moved from from going to Japan to going to Thailand. And looking back on it, it's totally clear that God never meant me to be in Japan. I just could not have handled that snow. We get Tim and Sue's letters from Sapporo where they were and the snow up there. It's crazy. Couldn't have dealt with that. God knew. God knew our personalities. He knew our limited language skills. We, we were, Christine and I, I love my wife and I kind of like me, but we suck at language. Uh, and, and Thai is hard, but it's nothing compared to Japanese. Japanese is, is really tough. We probably never would have got it. And so God knew these things. He knew, he knew the church we would help plant in Thailand. He knew the people we would share the gospel with and that would come to Christ in Thailand. He knew of people like Lek and Odd and C, people that are walking with the Lord today. Not because of us, but because God in our storm chose to redirect us. And in, and in this case, I can look back and I can see God's hand in that storm. But that's not always the case. Sometimes we're still in the midst of the storm and, and we can't see it. It's raging around us. Sometimes the storm is over and we still don't know. Well, God, what, what the heck was that all about? It's not clear. And that's when we're called to have faith in him. You know, we wouldn't need faith if he told us everything, right? We're called to have faith. And it's not... It's not uh, a blind faith. We have basis for this faith. I mean, he sent his son to die for us. That should be good enough. Everything else after that should be gravy, and we should just accept what God is doing. 
We may not always understand what he's doing, but we need to believe. We need to have faith and trust that he's at work, working all things together for good, for his glory, for our good as well. He sins and then he works through the storms of life. We see that in the book of Jonah. Verse 5, Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Typical. These sailors, these men, these mariners, they all had their religions. And when the boat was in the storm, they began to pray. That's what, that's what we do. When disaster comes, that's when we begin to pray. Right? Each of them cried out to their own God, but it, but it wasn't making a difference. Nothing was changing. Jonah had gone down below. He was asleep. And in verse 6, so the cap, maybe one of the funniest verses in all the Bible. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? You sleep. Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. What, what are you doing sleeping, Jonah? You sleeper? That's, that's your new nickname, your sleeper. <laughs> You're sleeping through this crazy storm. The captain says, Our gods haven't done anything. Why don't you try yours? I mean, isn't that typical? You know, this, this isn't working, so let's try this. You know, we're very pragmatic. Very, let's see how we can manipulate the gods into saving us. But Jonah is silent. He can't pray. How can he pray to a God that he's actively disobeying, that he's running from? He's running from the presence of the Lord. It's a word for us, isn't it? Christians who are running from God are of no use to lost people in a storm. There are lost people all around us. If we're running from God, if we're in the midst of sin, we're going to be of no use. Jonah was of no use. Maybe, maybe you see yourself in Jonah Your witness is silent. You can't help the lost people because of sin, because of the broken relationship, broken fellowship between you and God. Jonah was silent because of this this secret sin. He knew about it, but nobody else on the boat did. His rebellion against God was hidden. The life of every person on the ship was on the line. And the one person on the ship that had the truth, he knew what was going on, had nothing to offer. Why? Because he was immobilized by his own sin. But God. But God does not let it in there. The story could end and the ship wrecked and everybody died. But God intervenes again. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. God exposes Jonah's sin by the casting of lots. The lot was, was really, I, I read this, I didn't, I didn't know this, but it was, a, it was sort of like a paradise made out of the ankle bones of a sheep. God used tumbling dice to expose the secret sin of his rebellious servant, Jonah. God is sovereign even, even at the roll of a dice. The lot is cast, Proverbs says, Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but... It is every decision is from the Lord. The lot fell on Jonah, and Jonah's secret was out. Remember, Jonah was a child of God. He was a prophet of the Lord. God loved him, and he was not going to let him go. If he'd trusted 
excuse me, if you've trusted, if I've trusted in Christ, we're also children of God. And if God exposes our sin, it's because he loves us. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. I think, I think Jonah was probably relieved. Have you ever, have you ever had a, a sin in your life and you think, if, if people find out, it's over for me. And then they do, and it's not. Because God intervenes. I think Jonah was probably relieved when his secret was out. He was carrying the burden of this sin, and he was unable to pray. He was unable to be with his God. At one time, King David carried a, a secret sin in his life. He writes about it, and, and I think we can relate to this. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as, my heat, as the heat of summer. Selah, which means think about that. Think about that. Pause and think about that. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, think about that. Do you have a, a, a sin, a secret sin, that's destroying your relationship, your fellowship with God? Are you unable to pray? I would just encourage you to repent, to turn around, to confess your sin to the Lord, and then go that extra, extra step, that extra important step, and find a brother or a sister that you can share that burden with, that you can confess, someone you trust, someone you know that will pray for you, someone that you know can give you counsel and encourage you and hold you accountable. James wrote clearly that this is what we're commanded to do. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When God exposed Jonah's sin, it was the beginning of, of hope. Of hope for Jonah and hope for the ship's crew. And the crew began to ask Jonah questions. The lot falls to Jonah, and they begin to ask him questions. Verse 8, then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? Jonah answers, verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. When Jonah's sin is exposed, his silence is broken. Now he's able to tell the crew about the God of the Bible, the true, the one, the only God, who is unlike all other gods. He's the God of heaven. He created the land and the sea. He rules the winds and the waves. He exposes his rebellious servants. He sends storms that, that can wreck ships. The sailor's response to Jonah's testimony is fear. Verse 1, I mean chapter 1, verse 10. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you've done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So why were they afraid? Because they knew about Jonah's God. They'd, they'd traveled from ports to port to port picture where Israel is in the Mediterranean Sea. Spain's over here. They're going to Tarshish. But they, these were sailors. They had been all over. They'd been in many ports. They'd surely heard stories of other peoples and uh, their gods. They'd certainly heard of the Hebrew God and his great power. And it was this God who had sent the storm. 
and they were rightly afraid. They were, and they were right where they needed to be. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. These men were now in a place where they could receive the truth. Verse 11, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That means rougher and rougher. How can we pacify this angry God? How can we deal with this? With the wrath and the judgment and the anger of God? You know, that's the single most important question that we need to ask. If God is against us, we have... Imagine that, the creator God. He created, and he's against you. He sent a storm to destroy you. There's no hope. There's no future. What can we do? You know, there's a great lesson, maybe a a side lesson, but a a great lesson for us who seek to tell others about God, about our God, about the true God. Often we try to soft sell God. We kind of weaken him a little bit. We, We water him down. We water down the righteous anger and judgment he has for sin. But you know what? Before people can understand their need for a Savior... They have to understand what they need saving from. They need to understand the terrible judgment that awaits if they try to rebel against God. If they continue to rebel against God. Paul understood this. And in the book of Romans, before writing of the truth of God's love and His grace and His wonder and His mercy, before writing of of what happens in Christ, he spent the first three chapters getting across the point contained in, in, summarized, I think, in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath and judgment is real, and it will be revealed. I know this isn't popular, but people need to fear the Lord. They need to fear His judgment for their sin. Then and only then will the good news make sense. Then and only then will the good news be good. That that same God who stands over us in judgment has provided a sacrifice. A sacrifice for sin. That that same God that's wrathful and, and means to judge us for our sin has provided an escape. And that brings us to our second point. God's response to man's rebellion is God demands a sacrifice. Verse 12. He said to them, Jonah speaking, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will be quiet, will quiet down from, for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. If you want to be saved from the fierce anger of God, then toss me overboard. Ditch me, Jonah says. How did Jonah know the sea would become calm when they threw him out of the boat? Maybe he just figured it out, but I think, I think there's really only one clear answer. God had revealed it to him. God had opened his eyes. He had been sleeping before, and now he was awake. He had, sin had been co- confronted, and he's hearing from God again. He's receiving revelation from God. When Jonah's sin is exposed, God's silence is ended. And Jonah speaks again as a prophet, He had the office of a prophet. 
He had the authority of God behind his words. He tells the crew that they must do what they must do to be saved. Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Sacrifice me. Verse 13, which is very interesting to me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. I want you to notice that the first instinct of the crew is to refuse the sacrifice. I'm sure that that came out of a desire to spare Jonah's life. There was some good in that. But it also is a direct contradiction to the prophetic word of God. The crew felt that they could get through the storm without sacrificing Jonah. We can beat this storm. We don't need to sacrifice, so, so just row harder. We need to feel the, the weight of this picture. You know, and that, that's what so many of this old, these Old Testament stories are. They're pictures for us. Pictures where we can see Christ. We can see God. God had spoken through the prophet, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. Sacrifice Jonah and you will be saved from the storm. But these mean, men think they can save themselves without the sacrifice. So they row harder. They made a, a heroic effort to get back to the shore. And the strength of their impulse to refuse the sacrifice is, is huge. It's significant. It's, it's deep within our souls. There's a deep-seated pride in the human heart that says, we can do it. We don't need a sacrifice. We can escape on our own the judgments of God. We can, we're good enough. There's a poem by William Ernst Henley called Invictus that catches the spirit, I believe, of these men. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, how charged with punishments the scroll, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There's, there's courage in that. There's hero, heroism, if that's a word, in that. But, there's, but it's also extraordinarily resistant to God. I am the Lord of my life. I'm the captain of my soul. It doesn't matter what judgments God throws out. I'm in charge of me. That's the exact opposite of what it means to trust in the Lord for your salvation. That's where the sailors were. We can get through this. We can outrow God's storm. We're not going to sacrifice you, Jonah. Until, of course, verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land... But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. But they could not. These four words are a, a turning point for these men. When the crew realized that they couldn't beat the storm, they turned in, in desperation to what God had said through the prophet. It's often in desperation we turn to what the Lord says. I can't do it. I realize I've hit bottom. I can't do it on my own. I thought I could. I I'm, not the I'm really not the captain. I'm not even the lieutenant, you know, of my soul. They realize it. We're, we've only one hope. We have to do what Jonah says. Jonah says, okay, do it. And they stake their lives on the sacrifice of Jonah. The storm of God's judgment is stronger than we are. We can't overcome sin enough or make yourself good enough to survive God's storm. The storm of God's judgment will wreck us unless we're saved 
by the sacrifice of someone else. I hope you see how beautifully this paints the picture of why Jesus came into this world. This is why he went to the cross. He was cast out as a sacrifice to take the wrath of God on our behalf. The wrath of God did not disappear. The judgment of God did not disappear. It moved from you and I to Christ. He died on the cross so that you and I could survive God's judgment against sin. And that brings us to our our final point for this morning. God saves the sinner. The ship's crew see that that the religion they'd pursued is, is worthless. They abandon their own gods. What matters is that they find peace with this, this God of heaven, this God that is fearful, the one who made the land and the sea, the one who sends storms, the one who speaks through prophets, the one who tells us how to be saved. And so verse 14, Therefore they call out to the Lord, O Lord, tell us not to perish for this man's life and lay not... On us, innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased raging, ceased from its ragings. Lord, let us not perish. They know that they're guilty for throwing Jonah overboard to certain death, even though Jonah told them to. They had a they understood the value of life. Yet to their amazement, they received salvation through the sacrifice. God's storm ended when Jonah was thrown overboard. In a similar way, we find find salvation through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Like the sailors who threw Jonah overboard, we are responsible for Christ's crucifixion. We played a part in his crucifixion. It was for our sin that he was put on the cross. But when we recognize this, when we turn to him in repentance, receiving the forgiveness bought by him, bought by his blood, then the storm of God's judgment ends in our life. Our salvation comes when we believe and act upon the promises of God. When we put our trust in the Lord to save us. And the salvation came to these sailors when they believed and acted on the promises of God, when they put their trust in the Lord to save them. Verse 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. The fact that these sailors were saved is is evident in practically every word used. They feared They respected. They were in awe of the Lord. Earlier, they had prayed to their own gods. They had prayed to idols. Now, after Jonah had been thrown overboard and the wind had stopped, they turned and they prayed to the Lord. They worshipped the Lord. How did they worship? They offered sacrifices. They knew of the Jewish ways. They knew of the Hebrew ways. They knew that was the way to approach the Hebrew God. And they made vows. They vowed to forsake their gods and to serve the God of the Hebrews. They were converted. If the sailors had made their vows before the deliverance, I wouldn't be so impressed. There may have just been a foxhole conversion. You've heard of that, haven't you? We can imagine a situation in which a 
a soldier is, is crouching in a foxhole, looking down a hill against, against which the enemy's advancing, the enemy's coming. Naturally, he's afraid for his life. He begins to cry out, Oh God, if there is a God, don't let me be killed. I don't want to die. Save me. If you save me, I'll serve you. I'll do whatever you want. Yes, I'll even, yes, I'll even be a missionary. Suddenly, inexplicably, the enemy turns off in another direction. The battle shifts and the soldier is saved. The question is, does he remember his his conversion? Usually not. He turns to his buddy and says, boy, we sure, that was sure a close one. We got lucky there. Let's celebrate tonight. Let's celebrate when we, when we get off, when our next leave. I know a place where we can drink and gamble and, and other things. That's a foxhole conversion. But that's not what happened to these sailors. They made their vows after they had already been delivered. You get the difference. They were converted and vowed to serve the Lord all their days. You know, the title of this message is God's Response to Man's Rebellion. We saw that God allowed the rebellion. He allows us to rebel. He gives us that much. But in his children, he doesn't ignore it. He sends a storm to turn them around, to turn Jonah around, to turn us around. He demands a sacrifice. And he and only he can, and as he and only he can do, he saves sinners. That's God's response to rebellion. That's the good news. That God acts. That God intervenes. That He's not a, a distant deity that's just watching over us. He comes in. The question for us, for you and I, is how do we respond to a God like that? A God who won't let us go. A God who keeps coming after us. He exposes our secret sin. A God who sends storms into our life. Storms for our own good. Yes, of course, that his purposes might be fulfilled, but also that we might get back on the, on the right path. How do we respond to a God who demands a sacrifice for sin and then turns around and becomes that sacrifice for us? How do we respond to a God that saves sinners, that saves us? A God who through Christ Jesus saved you and I from our sin. Saves us from an eternity separated from Him in hell. And saves us to an eternal relationship, eternal fellowship in heaven with Him. I can think of no better response than the response of the sailors. They offered sacrifice and made vows. We have to do the same. And the sacrifice we make and the vows that we take are, are tied together. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 12, one, describing our sacrifice. We're no longer sacrificing animals, sheep and oxen and pigeons and doves. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. By the mercy of God, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have been, get that, by the mercy of God, through the sacrifice of Christ, we are now holy and acceptable to God. He intervened on our behalf. Now we're holy and acceptable 
if we're his child, if we've received him, if we've trusted in him. Now our response is given. The response is clear to offer our bodies, our lives as a living sacrifice for God's purposes. To vow to forsake the world that he alone be the Lord of our lives. To vow that we'll serve him for the rest of our days. You know what? There's no, there's no middle ground. Living sacrifice. Serving him for the rest of your days. That is the only acceptable response to God's intervention in our lives. Anything else is, is insulting. He requires it all. So this morning, I would ask that you and I, we examine our hearts. First, remember who God is. The God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. The God who responds to man's, to our rebellion, by sending storms, demanding a sacrifice, saving sinners. And then ask yourself, have I offered myself to him as a living sacrifice? Have I allowed him to deal with the sin in my life? Have I confessed it to God? Have I asked brothers and sisters to pray for me, to hold me accountable? Have I vowed? And am I keeping my vow to forsake the world and and serve him alone? He is the purpose for my existence. This morning, I want want to give us an opportunity to do just that. To make a vow or to renew a vow to the Lord of heaven and earth. If that's something you'd like to do, I'd invite you to to join me in prayer. I'm going to pray and I'm I'm just going to pray slowly. A line at a time. Sentence at a time. For us to think through what I'm praying and, and think through in your heart. Is this something I agree with? Is this something I want to say to the Lord myself and just give you that opportunity to pray that in your own words to the Lord. So would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in humility. Lord, we confess our sin to you and we ask for your forgiveness. We accept Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the payment for our sin. And we rejoice that in Christ we've been made holy and acceptable. Now, Lord, we do what is right. We do what we must do. We offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. We acknowledge that our lives are no longer our own that they were purchased by the blood of Christ. Father, we vow to forsake the things of this world and to serve you alone. We give ourselves completely to you. Lord, now use us as you see fit. Send us to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers. Lord, send us to the nations. Send us with the good news that because of Jesus Christ, we can escape your wrath and judgment and receive eternal life in your presence. Lord, thank you for the gift of your spirit that through his power we might keep 
this vow. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, if you prayed that prayer with me, then then I'd encourage you to, to share that with someone. Don't keep it to yourself. Again, we're the body of Christ. We're in this together. Find someone who you can continue in that relationship of prayer. Someone who will pray with you. Someone you can talk to about this vow and what that means for your life. What changes need to be made. If you want to pray with me, if you want to pray with one of the elders, I would invite you to to just come forward at the conclusion of the service, to just come forward. We'll be here to, to pray with you. There'll be someone to encourage you. Mike, would you lead us in our final song?